Welcome to the eighth podcast in our First Peter sermon series, Through the Fire. I'm Dan Rampeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley will be continuing our series with a sermon called Spiritual Distancing. Uh, we are back and still, I guess I, I should say, in First Peter. Welcome back. If you've been gone for a while, if you have been, uh, if you're watching online, if you've been involved in other things and you're now back to streaming, welcome. Welcome back to City on a Hill. Glad that you're here. Glad that you're watching. Glad that you're out there somewhere to be a part of what's going on with our church. Uh, we are in First Peter chapter 2. Last week, we took a kind of a short break because we had some baptisms, and that was a glorious, awesome, wonderful thing to be outside and to witness the stories, the testimonies of the four people that were baptized last week. Uh, I mentioned last week that where we're at in 1 Peter is kind of a transition point, so baptism fit just perfectly in that, because we were transitioning from what Peter was talking about with uh, our our vertical relationship with God, being established, understanding who you are in Christ, now that you're a Christ follower, a believer, a Christian, and then he was moving on and moving us on into our horizontal relationships. What do our relationships with each other now look like? So that's where we're going to continue with the passage this morning. This is a pivotal moment in this letter. What we've been looking at has built up to this moment. And this, this short passage, just these two verses, kind of established really the, the theme of what Peter is trying to develop for these ancient believers as well as us today. So we need to, to uh, take a shorter passage and to try to really fully take in what's going on. So let's read it together. Verses 11 and 2 from chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter's address to these loved believers, beloved. We'll look at that in just a second. Uh, His address here takes the form of a negative and a positive. Maybe you noticed that already. The negative side, abstain from these passions. And then on the positive side, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So in other words, number one, distance yourself from sin and... On the positive side, live honorably. And it's an interesting word. It's translated different ways throughout the New Testament. Uh, And here it's honorably. It's also translated beautiful, right, noble, a a, a number of different ways. But they all kind of combine into this one very strong term. Live in such a way that you would be seen as 
honorable before other people, especially other people that don't understand you, that don't know where you're coming from, that don't know why you've adopted the lifestyle that you have, your particular approach to life. They should see you and see something honorable. So even though those verses were short, there is a lot going on here that we have to unpack to really understand how this is a, a pivotal moment for us, for us this morning. So first of all, uh, I say distance yourselves. He says the he uses the word abstain, but that really means to create a distance between yourself and something or someone else. Uh, just a few months ago, the term social distancing was unheard of, or if it was out there somewhere, no one ever used it because that would have been bizarre, right? Do you remember when you started hearing that? Was it by what the end of March? Uh, somewhere in there, early spring, that on the on the media or in our vernacular just adopted social distancing. I remember the first time I started hearing that. What does that mean? So social distancing. And now we've heard it so many times that we puke a little bit. At least I do when I hear it yet again. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of hearing that. Uh, it's so ingrained in us now and so common and so wearisome, right? So that's social distancing, but to abstain is kind of like in Peter's words and his, his logic here is kind of the spiritual distancing, that we need to be aware as believers that spiritually speaking, it's imperative for us to distance ourselves from these things that, as he describes, wage war against our souls. So there's three questions to answer in this first part, this negative part of this passage. Three questions to answer when it comes to creating distance. Number one, where are you? I mean, if you're going to you know, understand things spatially speaking, you got to understand where you are, right, in the first place. And then secondly, what is your problem? We need to kind of address that. And thirdly, how do you engage this enemy? And I use the word enemy on purpose because he's talking about a war. So that is important to understand. Okay, so where are you? What is your problem? And how do I engage this mysterious enemy? Number one, where are you? I'm going to introduce to you, to you someone that maybe you've never heard of before. His name is Claudius. Now, Almost everybody's heard of Nero, right? The emperor, the Roman emperor Nero did some crazy stuff, uh, raised persecution to an official uh, status for, uh, against Christians in the Roman Empire. Almost everybody's heard him. You've heard of Nero, right? Everybody's heard of Nero? You probably haven't heard of Claudius. Uh, he only reigned for about 13 years, but he was Nero's predecessor. He had power and and he really wasn't too terrible of a guy. If you look up in the history books, he did some good things for uh, the empire and built more roads and, and basically a nice guy, okay? So, and he was uh, emperor around the uh, early 50s, maybe going into the 50s in that decade. And that was kind of a pivoting point for the early church because the gospel is spreading Christians were spreading around the empire, and they were just starting to become known 
but really known as what was the question mark, okay? So they're not just in Jerusalem anymore. They're all over the empire. But who are these people and where are they coming from? Now, Claudius, like other emperors before him and after him, they had complete power. They could do whatever they want. And occasionally they exiled people uh, from Rome because of, well, whatever reason they want to. Maybe they wanted to expand the empire and, and, and have some control over different areas of the empire. So they would exile on purpose certain uh, Roman people. So it wasn't always, exile wasn't always a negative thing, but, well, most of the time it was, because other times em- emperors like Claudius would pick on certain people groups because they were seen as troublemakers. And there were a few times, not just once that I'm referring to here, but a few times where groups of Jewish people were exiled, sent to different areas of the Roman Empire. Now, you see a quote there from the Roman historian Suetonius, and he says this, and he's quoting what happened and the reason for this exile. Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius expelled them from Rome. Now, you'll notice that's not the the right spelling for Christus would be Christ, uh, but uh, that happened, or especially early on in this brand new movement of Christianity, people didn't get who's Jesus Christ. So occasionally his name was misspelled. So we have good reason to believe that the historian is talking about Jesus Christ when he says Christus, even though it's misspelled, okay? So around the early 50s AD, there was an exile that Claudius, for whatever reason, not sure, found his group of Jews that he didn't like, and he sent them to a different part of the empire. That's probably a mixture of Jews, like non-Jesus Jews, okay, follow me so far, and those who are now Christ followers, Christus in his terminology, followers, that are mixed in with the Jews. Because the Jewish religion is official religion in the Roman Empire, but no one's heard of Christians yet. Or if they have heard of them, they don't know who they are or where they belong, so they just kind of get lumped in with other Jewish people. You with me so far? So there's trouble going on. The Emperor Claudius decides to exile his group of people. There's probably a mix of Jews and former Jews and probably some Gentiles that are thrown in with the Jews because they're now Christus or, or Christian, Jesus Christ followers. He puts them all together and sends them to a different part of the empire. Now, this is where it gets kind of fascinating because if you will look back to the beginning of First Peter, Peter says, uh, verse 1, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, okay? That's what he said in the very first verse. So scholars think that at the time of this writing, of this letter, that he, Peter, was probably a resident of Rome or somewhere near Rome. So he would have firsthand knowledge of this exile that the emperor is instigating. He's moving these Jews slash Christians slash whoever they are and he's moving them. Do you see that big circle on the map? So that's Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And it is on the edge of the Roman Empire at this time. 
So maybe Claudius wants some, uh, some uh, Roman people in that area because it's a mix of different ethnic backgrounds and races, and he, and he wants some people who uh, know Roman ways and customs. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe he just wants to get rid of them and push them somewhere else in the empire where they're not going to cause trouble in Rome. Maybe it's some kind of a mixture of those two things. But Peter knows firsthand that these Christians have been sent to this far away place and that they are Christians and he wants to encourage them in their faith and where they're at, which brings us back to the verses that we just read. He brings up again the fact that they're exiles. So I believe that there's two things going on here, and it really makes a lot of sense if you start thinking about it, because those regions probably weren't fully Hellenized. In other words, they're, they're so far on the edge of the influence of, of Greeks and Romans that they probably didn't even know common Greek which answers one of the questions that a lot of scholars have, if this is the case, because Peter's writing in Greek to people that live in an area where they're not going to read Greek. So what's the point of writing the letter? <laughs> Does that make sense? You're writing a letter that no one can read, but they can read if they're exiles from another area and they already understand the language. You follow me? So that's probably what's going on here, and it makes total sense. So Peter brings up again the fact that they are exiles. So remember, we started with this question, where are you? Two things going on. Physically, literally, they are exiles. They have been displaced. They have been forcibly moved from one area of the world where they had everything, where they had their lives, they had their jobs, they had their families, they, they had everything that they appreciated that they enjoyed, and now that is over. And they are thrown into the outskirts, the very edge of the empire, surrounded by people who don't understand their culture, don't know their language, don't live the way they do, and vice versa. So now what? How do I now live my life in this foreign place that I find myself? So that's a very real, literal, physical thing that they have to respond to and learn how to move and walk and live in. They didn't like it, probably didn't ask for it in any way, yet here they are. That's the literal understanding, but there is also kind of a metaphorical thing going on here. Not only physically are they exiles and sojourners, uh, wanderers on the face of the earth, but metaphorically, spiritually, they find themselves in the same place. Because see, the place that they're living in now, physically, is not their spiritual home. And they don't know where that is. Because as a new follower of Jesus Christ, whether you're on the outskirts of Asia Minor or whether you're in Rome, no matter where you're at, there are differences. That they're just, these new baby Christians, they're just starting to fully realize just how different it is to be a Jesus follower. I'm not, I'm not a Jew. I don't fit into that crowd, that group, the way they worship. And I, I certainly am realizing I'm not part of the, the, the pagan thing in Roman or, the, or the, wherever I'm at in the Roman Empire with the temples and, and just what people do. I, that's not my thing anymore. So what is my thing? Where do I belong? 
Where do I fit in? And spiritually, what is going on in this new status? So begin, even if you haven't been exiled before, you begin to start seeing how there are some similarities with the crowd that Peter is writing to, and even today. The culture and, and, and the language, yep, those things change, but the greater spiritual reality for a Christ follower doesn't change. It still remains the same as an exile or a sojourner on the face of this earth. So that's the first question, where are you? Where are you at right now in life, in the place that you live, the things that you understand to be good or normal? Where are you at as a believer? How much have you just kind of gone along with, and how much are you resisting? Which kind of brings us then uh, to the next question, what is your problem? What is your problem? You ever say that to somebody else? I bet you have at some point. So right now we're not pointing the finger at somebody else. What is your problem? The question is for, for me personally, so maybe I should say, what is, what is my problem? Well, what is Peter talking about? Uh, I, beloved, those of you I know, I love you. You're, you're my friends, you're my brothers and sisters. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to what? To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So another way to say soul is life. Your whole life, okay? So he's not, he's not speaking of some kind of existential experience. What is my soul? What's going on in my soul? Where is it at? Does, can we measure it? Does it have weight or whatever? He's not, he's not getting existential on us. He's talking about reality your whole life. There is a war going on that you are a part of, whether you realize it or not, whether you're engaging the enemy or not, and it actually affects your whole life. That's what he says, that's what he means when he says soul. So what, is, what, is, what are these passions that he's talking about? Well, I think it can kind of help us now to focus in on where these ancient believers were at. What kind of issues would you face if you were exiled? Now, every once in a while, and maybe even today in some places in the world, Christians face that, and uh, the response would be very real and maybe very emotional, right? None of us that I know of, as I look around, have been actually physically exiled somewhere. You've been sent to another land and forcibly and, and had to just all of a sudden change your culture, your ways, or your traditions. But it, just try to imagine for a moment if you were one of these believers, that because you're a Jesus follower, somebody has singled you out and said, I don't like what you're doing, and I'm going to send you to this whole different place of the world. What kind of passions might that stir up? Now, again, Peter doesn't give us, he doesn't give us all the details, but there's passions going on that are at war with the whole body. So think about it. I'd be very passionate for a lot of things as I think about. I'd be very passionate for my family, for my well-being, for the place that I'm at now in life, for security, uh, for, for belonging. Where, where do I belong? Outside a small group of people that perhaps I barely know as, as a new Christian, where, where do I really sense that I fit in anywhere? Maybe I'd be passionate 
for what I left behind. And maybe all of these things kind of taken together as they swirl around in my life, as they affect my thinking and my responses, maybe that uncertainty affects other passions that I have, creating kind of an imbalance in my heart. Maybe the things that I felt like I had a handle on uh, aren't really handleable anymore. And I'm out of control more than ever because what I really long for, what I really desire, what I'm passionate for is to bring things in under my control, but I can't do that. And sometimes, you know, when we find ourselves in a situation like that, we substitute because I can't be in control of what I really want. I'll find something else that I can be in control of that at least for the moment fills me up, that makes me feel good or makes me feel like I belong or makes me feel like I've got identity or purpose or the longings that I have are filled up. So it it can be very easy to go from one to the other. I'm not getting it here where I really want it, so I'll, I'll find another way that I think I can grab onto and control my life. Am I connecting yet? I think that's where they're at. And I think that's where a lot of believers can get drawn into passions of what he says, passions of the flesh. So don't get that confused with healthy passions. He's not talking about it right now. There there are plenty of healthy things, good things that a believer can be pat and should be passionate for. But there's no way he's addressing that now. He's speaking of the negative things. He's speaking of passions that are out of control, passions that we are addressing in ways that are unhealthy, that are ungodly or unhonorable. That's what's going on in these verses. So the next question is, how do I engage this enemy? Now that I'm starting to think like an exile, what does that require of me? What should my response be? Well, first of all, that there is a war going on around us. And how easy is it to be so comfortable in the lives that we have, especially when we feel like we do have control, right? The things are going pretty good and I don't need to worry about other stuff. So the war, eh, that's not really an issue right now. But just yank out like that big Jenga game. Everybody, anybody played Jenga before? You know, the stacks of blocks and yank out just the wrong one and what happens? The whole thing comes caving in. So whether it's COVID or a change in job, something that, that has happened or maybe has come your way this past year that you really didn't want or appreciate, and accentuates the need or the longing that we have for something else that we can control or, or, or be a part of, when that happens, then the Jenga game falls apart. And then where are we at? And what do we do with the passions that become a little more raw? The nerve is exposed, and what do we do with that? Well, there is a physical, fleshly war going on that Peter brings our attention to. We've got to acknowledge it. It's there. Can't ignore it forever. Can't just push it off the side. So how do we engage in in addressing the passions of the flesh? Here's what I think it boils down to. We've got to realize that there's something more, there's something deeper that contributes to, that fuels the desire for something, for anything 
that violates God's plan for us. It's the twisting of desires, the accentuating, uh, the blowing out of proportion of those desires that God has given us that lead us to indulge in passions that we try to sometimes quench to fill up in dishonorable ways, ways that aren't pure, that aren't lovely, that aren't beautiful, that aren't right in the different ways that that the New Testament uses that words, ways that actually maybe in the end result bring more pain or frustration or shame. Peter doesn't go into the details. Maybe it's some of those suggestions that I brought up. He leaves it open-ended. could be related to food or sex or wealth, a passion for acceptance or worth in society that they are now living in. I think one of the biggest issues that we have today when it comes to, especially right now in our culture today, when it comes to passions of the flesh, one of those things that we don't like talking about is sexuality. It's there, it's the elephant in the room, uh, but it's rarely preached on. Or, or if it is preached on, it's so awkward we don't like talking about it. We don't talk about sexuality openly in the church or part of the church because it's so uncomfortable or maybe touches on something that we consider to be shameful and we don't know what to do about it. So one specific example is same-sex attraction, or I'll kind of abbreviate it as SSA, okay? The majority of the Western world has come to terms with it and has kind of a unified narrative that embraces or even celebrates SSA. That's where our culture is at. And many churches, many denominations have bought into that narrative, have just kind of grown to accept it and move along with it. That is where our society has already gone. And especially within the last 20, even the last 15 years, public opinion has swung dramatically. It's done a 180 when it comes to understanding or accepting, or like I said, even, even uh, celebrating uh, SSA. So the church, uh, evangelical church in particular, I think has done a really poor job articulating a message when it comes to this kind of passion of the flesh, like what Peter's talking about. Uh, we've done a poor job articulating a message that is both biblically sound that we understand what the Bible says, and we'll talk about it, but also something that is gospel-rich, that there is something else going on that is connected to a Christian's understanding of biblical morality, but it's so far deeper and, and wider and more wonderful than that. That's what I think we've done a poor job talking about together. Now, this is a whole much larger, bigger conversation, but I do want to say something about it now that I've already brought it up. For anyone, for anyone, believer or non-believer, who is at a place where they're unsure of what they think about when it comes to same-sex attraction, where they stand with that, uh, because we understand more now, and the people that I talk to describe themselves not so much when it comes to uh, sexual attraction as black and white, but a spectrum that where they're at currently is somewhere in there. And they're still trying, a lot of people, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people are still trying to figure out what it is that they accept about themselves and where they're at. So uh, if you're in that 
somewhere, I'll say this, that your deepest need or desire will not be filled up with another person, no matter how sexually amazing that may be for a time. We all want, we're all wired to need to desire something more than that. And I could say the exact same thing to those of us who are heterosexually attracted to other people. Your deepest desire will not be filled up in a relationship with another person, no matter how dramatic that connection, sexual connection is, okay? Uh, I highly recommend a book. It's written by a, a woman by the name of Jackie Hill Perry, and it's entitled Gay Girl, Good God. And in that book, she tells her story of uh, SSA, where she was at as a younger person, and how God used other people in her life that through her wandering, through her trying to figure out who she was and where she was at, God spoke to her. And one of the things she talks about in her book was how frustrated she was with well-meaning Christians talking to her about uh, sexual attraction. If you just had desire for a man instead of a woman, then that would fill you up. So in other words, get married and have kids and have a family because that's what you really need. And she speaks very articulately to that point that it's, that's not what she really needed. And in fact, no matter what your sexual attraction is, we're all on the same page with that. So here's what she said in her book. Someone trying to pursue heterosexuality and not holiness is just as far from right standing with God as someone actively pursuing homosexuality. If sexuality was there and our primary identity, then that would make sexuality our primary call. But... We were not ultimately made for sex. We were made for God and his glory alone. And she cites Colossians 1.16 in that message. Our deepest desires that God has put in us transcend sexuality, no matter how you understand it, whether you come to terms with it even yet or not. Transcend it. Just, I can't say it better than how she said it. The real need is for God. The real desire that we have deep down in there somewhere is for something other, which is a good definition for holiness. That's what she discovered. So well-meaning Christians were wrong. She didn't need a husband and a family. She needed God. And you see, we're all on the same page when it comes to that message. So please understand that the deepest desire, what Paul's talking about, that the, the, the war that's waging in my flesh, in my body, there are certain things that maybe as Christians or as a church, we've kind of put Band-Aids on hemorrhages. Uh, we've tried to address in insufficient ways. What we really need is a deeper understanding of how broken our relationship with God is. Then address the other things. Yep, they, they're important somewhere down the line in response, but the real key deep desire is for our, 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 our desire for that filling to be met and to be met only in God. So Peter's positive response 
to the negative passions is to live honorably. He says, so that when they, when the people around you, the Gentiles, he says, the people, the world around you speak negatively, speak of you as an evildoer, they may what? See your good deeds and glorify God. Now, and, and we're moving on here to the last part of that passage. And this really is just a foundation for where we're going for the next few weeks. Because as, as Peter goes on with his discussion, he addresses in, in specific ways different relationships, okay? I mentioned this, this is hor- the horizontal thing. So what does living honorably look like? And in some ways, that's fairly easy to grasp, but in other ways, it gets kind of complicated. So some people... Uh, with these Christians uh, spread out in Asia Minor, like I mentioned, uh, they're around these other cultures, some things they would agree on. Some things would be fairly honorable. There's certain things that kind of transcend cultural differences. Murder is one of those things, okay? You really shouldn't go around killing people. Okay, we're all kind of in agreement on that, okay? That, that's an easy one to grasp. So, you know, make sure you don't screw up the fairly easy ones. But there are other things that we disagree on when it comes to morality and ethics and so forth. So, back to Claudius, okay? He had these three points, uh, this three-point policy on religious tolerance in the Roman world. Number one, don't disturb the public peace. Number two, don't offend accepted morals. Number three, don't engage in converting, converting native Romans. You do that, peoples of the Roman world, no matter what your culture or religion is, do that and we're all good, okay? So on the surface, you could kind of say as a Christian, all right, I'm good with that. I'm not going to do that. But wait a second. There could be, probably will be some places as you continue to live your life striving to be honorable, there will be some issues. There are going to be some places along the road where your approach doesn't match what his three-point outline says for tolerance. Sometimes Christians, just being Christians, are intolerable. In ancient times and today as well. Consider what Paul did. Number one, don't disturb the public peace. Why was he arrested and beaten so many times? Because he would go out and preach in public, out in the open, and eventually somebody heard him and didn't like him. He was disturbing the public peace, and they'd throw him in prison. So he was in direct, in this part of the century, in direct violation to what the Roman authorities said. That happened. Don't offend accepted morals. Well, what if the accepted morality has to do with pagan sacrifice and worship in temples? Well, Christians no longer really wanted to be a part of that. So they would withdraw from that, or maybe even speak out against it. And all of a sudden, they're offending accepted morals. There's number two down. What about number three? Don't engage in converting native Romans. Well, guess what? God has a plan for people to come to know him. So even if you're trying not to do that, number three, there will be some point in your life where you actually speak of your knowledge of Christ and your hope in him And it just may happen that the Holy Spirit is working on somebody else that doesn't know Christ, and he uses you to speak to them, and all of a sudden they're asking, what must I do to be saved, which happens in the New Testament, and it still happens today, even if you're trying to not be an evangelist. 
because of your lifestyle, there's something different and God uses you. And all of a sudden, you screwed up number three. You see where that's going? You can try real hard to be nice all the time if honorable is equated with don't make trouble ever. You can try real hard. You can make that your highest good, your highest goal. But even then, if you're still trying to live for Christ, you're still going to stumble on that. And that's where it gets tricky. And Peter takes us into that and this new reality that we have in all of our relationships it gets tricky. Who is it at the end of the day that's most important? What is it that's most important when it comes to living honorably as a believer? Maybe you noticed at the end of verse 12 when he says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Maybe you noticed that that sounds a, a lot like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, to kind of form the whole purpose for our existence as a church. Anybody notice that? That you should shine your light like a city on a hill, a light that can't be hidden, that shines out so that what? What did Jesus say? I'm sure Peter heard it, and he is now reinforcing the same message to these believers. Shine your light, even though it's difficult, even though you're in exile, even though you're in a place that nobody really gets you. You still shine like a city on a hill, so that when people see your honorable works, your good works, what do they do? They don't lift you up. They lift their eyes up and see that God is real, that there's something here I don't get. I don't understand all of it, but there's got to be a God, and he's got to be behind it because you're different. You're changed. And what the, well, I don't know why you do what you do. There's got to be a God because what you do doesn't make sense. And in fact, you even take all sorts of garbage for it yet you still do it. Why? Why? You're in exile that doesn't make sense. It's got to be something else. That's where Peter, and that's why Peter, reinforces and repeats what it is that Jesus said. Some, some final things here to, that I want to leave with you to think about. Uh, if you could help me out here in the back, thank you. When it comes to living honorably, in a matters where you agree, don't let people down. Some things that we agree on still in our neighborhoods are, you know, the places where we live, the places where, where we work right now. When it comes to being a believer today, sometimes I think this, that we've got to reinforce the right honorable things because there's a whole lot of negative stuff about Christians. And this is where I find to be really true when it comes to pastors. I know I've said this in the past, but when I, I, I'm reluctant to say I'm a pastor because the majority of people I say that to, their instant reaction is negative in our society right now. So if I say pastor, ooh, what has he done, right? I mean, I, maybe that sounds crazy to you. It's not crazy. That's the reaction I get from a whole lot of people. I've got to do my best to live honorably so I live down whatever negative perceptions they have about a pastor today. I've got to do that. If your neighbors, when they hear Christian, when they hear church, when they think of God, when they think of Christ, if they think of something negative, if they think of just endless, pointless religion, legalism, that you're going to just tell them what to do, or you're going to tell them that what they're doing is wrong, if that's their perception of Christ, you've got to do your best to live it down, crush it down, so they see something else. There's something else about you, and it's not just legalism. 
There's something living in you that's changing you, that you enjoy, that you delight in. Be a part of that kind of positive movement. Your good works, your lifestyle should be God-glorifying no matter what anyone else thinks. That takes us to the next step, okay? Because even if people uh, start to see and start to hear that there's something different about you, they may think that, ah, I don't want that either, for whatever reason. And it may, according to you, may be baseless, okay? I, I didn't ask for that. I didn't do anything to earn that, yet people are still projecting that on me. So be it. That is part of what it means to be in exile today in our culture. The ramifications, there are consequences always if you claim Christ as Lord. That's part of the reality of being in exile today. And expect the inevitable. Goes right along with it. Uh, how does Peter say it? Uh, he says in verse 12, so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, not if, when, it's going to happen. So in that sense, we kind of just have to suck it up. It is the reality of being an exile or a sojourner where you don't quite fit in ever, or at least completely the way maybe that you used to or would like to. Now, I've, I've told you, uh, every time, I need, one, I need help one more time, guys. I'm not advancing for some reason. Remember, I said that we do this every time. It's not do this and you will live, do this because you will live. Uh, what we're following, are following here uh, because of Christ happens and begins within us, and then we have the joy of pursuing him. And as he changes our life, changes our attitude about these things, do this because you live and I would add this final thing. You got to know where your home is. The most popular passage of the Bible that's read at almost, almost every funeral comes from John chapter 14. Perhaps you've heard a minister read it at a funeral. It's Jesus speaking to the disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Christ needs his followers to know where home is. It's not in Galatia. It's not in Rosemount. It's not in this world. If you have a growing understanding and appreciation that Jesus has created and is creating and establishing this place to be with him forever, then this temporal, this temporary place begins to come into focus better. So we can't lose sight of what he says to us in John 14. That place is better. That place is with Jesus. That place is where we're going. That is the movement of the church together to be in that place forever. Don't lose track of where home really is. And then we'll be on the right path together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we, as we begin to grasp the, the details of what Peter is addressing, I would pray that you would work in our hearts again, anew, afresh, uh, remind us, Lord, of where our home truly is. 
if there are ways, Lord, that we struggle with the passions of our flesh. And I'm certain that there is because we all struggle at times with things that are left over from life before you, with things that uh, just aren't filled up or dealt with yet even. Lord Jesus, I pray that this week that you would work in a new way that we would again, or maybe for the first time, acknowledge that we are in a war, that there is stuff going on that is hard to deal with. Return us, Lord, to your word, to the refreshment of your promises in your, in your word, and to the help and the, and the security and the encouragement of your body. Build us up together, Lord, that as we try to work through these things, that we would find the deepest longings filled, not just temporarily, but fully and completely in the well of living water that you are. So cause us, Lord, to spring up with that well. Cause us to live in such a fashion that people would see that we are filled, that there is something radically different, and it's you, Jesus. So be a part of a new thing that as we see and comprehend what you're doing, we will give glory to you just as others that you're calling would also give glory to you as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our series in 1 Peter. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Genesis, Crossroads, Ruth, FaithWorks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.